Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In today's podcast, we're going to explore how law enforcement and other government agencies in the United States acquire data drawn from commercial data brokers for investigative purposes and the questions raised by these practices. This is an issue that is still at question in the nation's courts and is under active discussion on Capitol Hill. For instance, this summer, the House Judiciary Committee hosted a hearing it titled Digital Dragnets Examining the Government's Access to Your Personal Data. Here's the committee's chairman, Jerry Nadler, a Democrat from New York, in his opening to the hearing. Uh, data is often called the oil of the 21st century, and the rush to participate in the market for data has made the tracking of our personal information an inescapable part of daily life. From web hosts and cell phones to service providers and mobile applications, companies that provide online services are part of an ever-growing industry around the collection and commodification of our data. Private companies now compete with each other to manage these enormous troves of information, and this trend alone presents significant privacy concerns. But it's even more troubling that law enforcement and intelligence agencies at all levels of government are purchasing this data for their own use, often sidestepping protections designed to limit the direct acquisition of the exact same information. Simply put, law enforcement and intelligence agencies are now able to obtain vast quantities of information without a warrant. Your physical location, your personal habits, your internet searches, your likes and dislikes, and your politics, to name just a few private concerns, are all available and accessible to the government. The easy availability of personal data to the government poses significant risk to minorities, to those with unpopular views, to our system of justice, and ultimately, to the stability of our democracy itself. One of the expert witnesses at the hearing was the Honorable Bob Goodlatte, Nadler's predecessor as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, a former Republican congressman from Virginia's 6th District, and now a senior policy advisor at the nonpartisan Project for Privacy and Surveillance Accountability. Government agencies are asserting they can flout the Fourth Amendment's requirement for a probable cause warrant by simply buying our personal data. Agencies ranging from the Defense Intelligence Agency to the IRS to likely the FBI and CIA as well are buying the personal data of millions of Americans they would otherwise have to get a warrant to obtain. Some of us are nonchalant about all of the personal information companies like Facebook compile on us. Others are outraged at this corporate invasion of our privacy. I would add, however, that the extraction of our personal data by the government is far more ominous. No private party can break down your door at dawn, take you out in handcuffs, and prosecute you. No private party can fine you, enjoin you, restrain you, tax you, and deprive you of liberty and, yes, even life. Only the government can do that. Our very country was born out of anger and fear of what a government can do to people when it doesn't respect their privacy. The offensiveness of seizures of Americans' personal information by agents of the British Crown explains why the framers of the Constitution explicitly required a warrant based on probable cause. Now government lawyers are embellishing this work of the framers by adding, quote, unless we buy it, end quote. 
This practice defies the Fourth Amendment. It also defies Supreme Court opinions requiring warrants to access someone's location history from a cell tower and forbidding warrantless intrusion into a cell phone because it holds, quote, the privacies of life. Goodlatte's framing of the issues before the committee and the general degree of support Republican members seem to demonstrate for the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, a proposed bill that would prevent law enforcement and intelligence agencies from buying commercial data on citizens, shows that, at least on this issue, there is some level of bipartisan concern. But while the courts and Congress deliberate, local law enforcement agencies are acquiring personal information from software providers, including one such firm that was the subject of a recent investigative report from the Associated Press. Today, I'm joined by the two reporters who spent months trying to understand how a little-known company in Virginia goes about acquiring commercially available data and selling it to police in departments across the country. I'm Jason Deeran. I'm a national investigative reporter with the Associated Press based in New York. And I'm Garance Burke. I'm a global investigative journalist based in San Francisco for the Associated Press. I'm very grateful to both of you for joining me today. And before we get started talking about the specific story that I've invited you on to talk through today, I'd love to just know a little bit more about uh, your beats and how you kind of go about the work of investigative reporting at the Associated Press. So Garance, perhaps I'll start with you, since I know you are specifically concerned with the intersection of tech and society. Sure. So I'm leading an AI initiative at AP, looking at the impacts of surveillance and predictive technologies on our communities, working with colleagues around the world and across the United States to really try to understand how AI is popping up in all of our lives. Um, and so this is part and parcel of one of my uh, main areas of focus as a journalist right now. Excellent. And I understand, you know, you have done some work with Pulitzer Center and uh, Stanford in this regard as well. Sure. Yeah. So I conceived of this project after finishing a fellowship at Stanford University. It was a joint fellowship between the John S. Knight Journalism Fellowship and the Stanford Human-Centered AI Institute. And so it just seemed to me really important as an investigative journalist for folks to understand more about AI, how it works, how it doesn't work, and how it is sort of omnipresent in our uh, various levels of existence these days. Um, so that's something that I pitched to AP upon returning and was super glad to have Jason join in on this investigation. Jason, your work really cuts across the gamut from white supremacy to environment, and you've got a, a book under your belt? Yeah, so I am interested in, I'm kind of a generalist, but over my career, I've I had a number of themes, the environment and public health and criminal justice and science. I was a 2018-2019 night science journalism fellow at MIT, where I worked on uh, my book, and which is called Kill Shot, uh, for anyone interested. And uh, I've been keeping my fingers in both of those uh, subject areas, uh, public health during the pandemic. I did a lot of investigations related to that. And then criminal justice as it most recently, as it kind of pertains to um, white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement agencies. So those have been kind of the things I've been working on before um, Garantz and I got together on this project. This story, which came out just before Labor Day, Tech Tool offers police mass surveillance on a budget 
combines uh, your your two curiosities greatly. But let's talk a little bit about how it came together. So we'll get into the details of what is Fog Reveal, what is Fog Data Science, this company behind this product. But tell me a little bit about how you got started down this path. I, I understand it started with an approach from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which had come across some records. That's right. Yeah. So um, a contact over at EFF had reached out to me and said they thought they had some documents that might be of interest. That was back in January. And by February, Jason and I had started pouring through this cache of thousands of pages of records that EFF had obtained via the Freedom of Information Act. Um, Now, this was really the starting point for our investigation. Um, We had to categorize the records, make sure we understood what they were. By and large, they were contracts and emails, presentations from police and law enforcement agencies that had used uh, this particular surveillance tool, Fog Reveal, um, and included conversations that police were having with the company and amongst themselves about how to use it to surveil people in their communities. But then we also had to start um, thinking about how to get beyond the records. So Jason, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. As we were, you know, obviously we're reading emails in these records uh, from various law enforcement agencies. uh, And we were looking for any evidence of cases, specific cases that uh, fog was used in that led to an arrest or anything like that. So that's kind of where we started. I also started uh, reaching out to defense attorneys to see if they'd heard about this. Uh, There had been some interesting One interesting legal development when we first started this effort was in Fogg's home state of Virginia, there had been a district court ruling about geofence warrants uh, earlier this year that found them unconstitutional um, because they cast too wide a net. Uh, You know, when I think it was related to a 2019 bank robbery case there where uh, police had used a geofence and ended up gathering all this data on on bystanders. And that was found to be uh, unconstitutional. So we knew we had kind of that one legal opinion to look at, but there's, you know, obviously tech outpaces the court and legal system so much that there wasn't a lot of other legal kind of framework to look at here. So we, I started talking to defense attorneys kind of around the country to see if they'd heard of this or if, they'd been, if it had come up in discovery in any cases. And, and we were finding, we were really striking out. They hadn't heard of it, but that kind of piqued our interest even more. Ultimately, I understand you were able to uh, identify at least uh, 40 contracts with this company and a couple of dozen agencies out there. Tell us a little bit about what is Fog Reveal and what is this company, Fog Data Science, as you say, uh, based in Leesburg, Virginia? So we were really interested in this relatively obscure company that, as you said, is based in Leesburg, Virginia, um, and has some related corporate entities in several other states. And so little was known about it. Um, We were able to figure out that they were very much networked into law enforcement associations, associations bringing together Department of Homeland Security affiliated fusion centers, and that that was really where they focused their marketing for their tool called Fog Reveal. And we wanted to go deeper into who were the people behind this company, how the technology worked, and most importantly, what its impacts were in our communities. So just for the listener's sake, maybe you can just give me a sense of 
how the system works. So I understand it's web-based. So quite literally a police department buys a contract. And, and then what happens? We really tried in many different ways to get someone to demonstrate this for us. You know, uh, we knew from public records that police agencies were using this tool. They had it. They talked to us about it a little bit here and there, but uh, no one would no one would do that. What we were able to glean was that there's a web interface that the police officer, detective, the license holder um, can go in and put in coordinates for a specific crime scene. And that will generate something called a fog ID. And what we were able to kind of figure out about that is that the fog ID was basically kind of the company fog taking some other information, either a Ventel ID from that company or um, some other, uh, you know, advertising um, identification number and kind of just putting a new number on top of it. They would call that the fog ID. So then they could get a sense for who, which devices were at which locations. Uh, And what we're also able to learn is that they could search back in time it's still unclear to us, I think, exactly how far back they can go. One email says they could go back to June of 2017. The marketing materials say 180 days. And then after the story ran, one of the executives for FOG said that it could go back three years, uh, emailed us afterwards and said it could go back three years. So it can go back in time, either 180 days to three years, somewhere it seems like in that situation. So, that, so that's how it works. It's, a, it's pretty simple to use. It seems like, I think where it gets more complicated is when clients, police want to dig deeper into a specific device ID and start creating a pattern of life and following that around a little bit. And you see in the emails that they will go and ask for help from FOG uh, sales reps and executives and and, and they go back and forth. And a lot of times FOG is helping provide some analysis for them as well. So you mentioned in the piece, you know, a couple of different types of data a consumer data that is federated into the system. Uh, one aspect or one thing that you mentioned is, is Starbucks app data. Uh, another is Waze uh, data, the popular uh, map app, of course. Essentially, this company is sort of federating all sorts of location data uh, brought to it from Vintel and uh, presumably other sources. Yeah, that's right. The way we understand it and based on what Fog would say uh, in its marketing materials about where it gets its data is that there are at least hundreds of apps that are gathering data or hoovering up data, sales data, um, ad ID data that is provided by these apps to Ventel. We believe it was Ventel and Gravy Analytics was the other company that is a uh, parent of Ventel that Fog obtains its information from. But when we went to Starbucks and went to Waze and talked to them about this, the company said they had no, never heard of Fog. Um, and had given no permissions for its business partners to sell the data to Fog, and so there was a little, there was a, a disconnect there. And even though the apps are designed in a way that allows this ad ID data to be gathered by data brokers, the very the specific, you know, kind of end users of that data, the companies claim to have no knowledge of whatsoever. And that was a point of interest for us, Justin, because we went to Ventel and asked them to explain how it was that Fog got 
its data or you know what the relationship between the companies was ventel wouldn't comment um, said the confidential nature of their business relationships prevented it from responding to our questions fog wouldn't comment on it either so i think that that's one thing that we're interested in continuing to look at is just the ways in which many of these data brokers operate in relative anonymity and we're very much interested in understanding some of the the public policy implications of you know having companies that are so difficult to trace have such intimate details about people's lives of course anybody that's looked at the ecology of data brokers uh, in this country knows that that's an incredibly difficult thing to to track and to to understand yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the subject of multiple different congressional inquiries right now. Um, the Department of Homeland Security's watchdog is auditing how offices under its control have used commercial data. Um, so I think it's it's definitely an area that we'll be interested to continue to watch. Also the subject of an FTC uh, rulemaking hearing just this week. And um, as you say, uh, multiple other uh, hearings in, in Congress, I believe another in in the Judiciary Committee and the House uh, a couple of weeks ago as well. I understand the company is also promising, at least in some of its materials, that it can sell or it can do kind of predictive analytics. Right. That's another area of interest for us. Of course, predictive analytics is a buzzword that's often used to describe different kinds of high-tech policing tools that purport to predict crime spots or even purport who may have criminal predilection. But the the company did not answer uh, our specific questions about its predictive analytics, which is, again, something that Bog said multiple times in its uh, brochures that this was capable, this was a capability that the company had even as recently as last year for members of the National Fusion Center Association. But when we asked them, they provided no details about any uses the tool had for predicting crime and said that they had not invested in predictive applications. Yeah, and one thing I'd add to that too is that it's hard to know with a company like Fog and how you know kind of relatively young they are, how much of what they were stating in their marketing materials was um, boasting or plans for the future. Like, you know, were they going to invest in later some sort of predictive analytics, things like that? And also, you know, even in saying Starbucks in ways in their marketing materials, those are two big brands. One interpretation of that is that they were using these brand names to kind of explain to their potential customers what kind of data could be included, right, that they were gathering up and drawing from rather than specifically from these two companies. And, and that was something that we kept in mind as we were reporting. And that's the difficulty, as, as you mentioned, too, of reporting in this area is that, uh, you know, the companies don't want to talk about it. The customers don't want to talk about it. And oftentimes the victims don't know if there are victims, don't know they're victims because there's no information about this in the court records. Uh, and so it's definitely a, um, a very shadowy kind of area in which to try to glean facts. And yet, in fairness uh, to the company, you do write that, quote, Fogg's uh, Broderick said in an email that the company does not have access to people's personal information, draws from commercially available data without restrictions to use. Uh, and from data brokers that legitimately purchase data from apps in accordance with their legal agreements. Is there uh, anything necessarily against the law about what this company is doing when it shares this information with law enforcement? Well, I think one of the interesting things that we found through our reporting is just that this is such an evolving legal landscape. 
as you were saying, Justin, there are multiple hearings that have been going on before Congress. The FTC is really examining this in great depth um, and in fact sued a data broker recently over similar issues. But, you know, Fogg says that what they do is absolutely within the bounds of the law. Of course, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and other privacy advocacy groups say um, that's not the case. One of the voices that comes forward in the story is from uh, Davin Hall, uh, who you say is a former crime data analysis supervisor uh, in the Greensboro, North Carolina Police Department. I grew up not far from Greensboro, so I noticed that one in particular. Tell us his story a little bit. How did you come across him? So Davin had written a blog post about the concerns that they had raised while working at the Greensboro Police Department about fog and about other technologies they felt were really intruding on people's lives. But really, you know, then kind of disappeared from public view. So we tracked down Davin and had a whole series of conversations with them just about the concerns that they had raised over and over again within the Greensboro Police Department. And this is someone who was, you know, at a relatively high post there as a data analysis supervisor. Davin raised the concerns to lawyers at the police department, they said, as well as to the city council. And those fell on deaf ears. And ultimately, Davin ended up quitting, in part, just out of concern for the uses that this type of technology was being put to in the community. And Davin had also, with such a, you know, so, so few public mentions of fog out there, Davin had also written a letter to the city council kind of raising concern about this issue. And it was one of the public documents out there that mentioned fog that could, would come up in, in a search. So it, that was something else that kind of tied Davin to this. So I understand from your reporting that this is a service that you know, it's not totally uh, inexpensive. It's you report contracts around $7,000, $9,000 for access to the service. Uh, but of course, that puts it uh, well within the, the capability of, of most, I'm sure, police departments across the country to purchase as an enterprise uh, subscription. In terms of kind of the scale of it, how far the, the company's kind of got with its effort so far, do you have a sense of how big this company is? How many departments it's working with? Of course, we'd love to know more from the company itself about its customers, but weren't able to get uh, a ton of specific details. Um, we do know that agencies as small as rural Rockingham County, North Carolina, which you might know better than we do, Justin, has a license. You know, it's a rural part of North Carolina. Um, and recently, the Dallas Police Department, um, one of the top 10 largest in terms of number of sworn officers signed up for Fog Reveal. So I think there's a real span of agencies that uh, use FOG as a part of their investigatory toolkit. But really, we're, we're very interested in hearing from other agencies where this may have cropped up, perhaps on a free trial basis that might not be, um, you know, memorialized in those contracts. And we also are interested in hearing of other uses, um, perhaps in the private sector where FOG has popped up. I wanted to ask you just a little bit about the backgrounds of the founders, who I understand are former Department of Homeland Security executives. 
Yeah, Robert Laskowski worked in the George W. Bush administration, as did uh, Matthew Broderick, not the actor, but the executive. Broderick was involved in Hurricane Katrina response and was later later resigned due to the slow uh, response of the agency under his command. Laskowski has some background in a, a cyber command department, which we were not familiar with. I'm still not familiar with what, what actually they did. But uh, other than those um, you know, pieces of their background, there wasn't a lot of information about why they started Fog or how Fog got off the ground and where the idea, where the genesis for the company came from. But we were interested that Laskowski and another Fog official had previously worked at companies focused on predictive analytics or machine learning, um, you know, different types of software platforms supporting artificial intelligence. Fog seems to be, you know, definitely within their wheelhouse, but we were just unable to get a ton of details about exactly how it came to be. I want to ask you a little bit about the response to the story. It's only been a week since it published uh, from the time that, that we're speaking today. But, you, you know, you mentioned that you've had other information uh, that's kind of come along since. Um, what has been the response, uh, including from some of those privacy advocates or uh, lawmakers? Have you uh, seen signs that this reporting uh, may have impact already? The response online and uh, it has been very strong uh, in terms of kind of people being freaked out about the potential for misuse of this um, of, of this tool. Uh, but in terms of response from lawmakers or you know people who could get involved in creating some sort of you know kind of legal solution to any privacy concerns that are raised by Fog's tool. Um, we haven't heard anything back yet, unless I'm missing something, Grant. So I don't know if you know of any sort of reach out from people. The queen dying, I think, has everybody's attention right now, so we can forget about these scary uh, you know, tech tools. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that we are able to say it's been read at very high levels of the US government, um, and we've been really gratified to see the response and um, just the interest from audiences. One of the things that we worked really hard to do, Justin, was to include examples of where FOG has been used. And we spoke with an Arkansas prosecutor who said that this was really very useful um, for cracking a murder case in Arkansas, the murder of Sydney Sutherland, a nurse. Um, and it was also useful, we found uh, according to emails we got from the Missouri State Highway Patrol in another high-profile murder case involving a snake breeder. So I think as people get a better sense as to how this is actually showing up on the ground, um, we may hear from more you know, local uh, officials who have concerns or perspective that they want to share. I know that the city councilman in Anaheim, California, who we spoke to, felt that he never got anything like the details he would have sought before hearing that his city had deployed this tool. Um, so we're, we're going to stay tuned on this. And we'll be really interested to see, too, what uh, ways Starbucks and other big brands and companies who have these kinds of apps um, that know that their data is being used uh, by data brokers or sold, you know, repackaged. I'd be really interested to see, based on their response to us, um, if there 
if there is any action, you know, uh, cease and desist letters or or otherwise, um, because uh, publicly, you know, in, in their statements, what they told us was that uh, there was no permissions given for their for their data to be used in this manner for this type of surveillance by by police. So that's another thing we'll we'll be watching closely. We're also interested to see, you know, what Fog decides to do in terms of its marketing. Um, you know, this is a company that has had a lot of sort of penetration in the law enforcement market, um, but you never know. They may decide to pursue um, additional types of customers as well. Of course, my listeners are aware that the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act is uh, in debate at the moment. And at least in the last hearing, uh, where I understand it was discussed, uh, there seemed to be bipartisan support uh, in the committee for uh, that particular piece of legislation, which would address uh, some of the questions here and and maybe solve on some level um, some of these issues about you know what are appropriate use cases that truly do lead to good outcomes in law enforcement and what are uh, these sort of frightening phenomena that give people such cause for concern about uh, law enforcement overreach in this regard. But you know, right now, I mean, this story does seem to fit a uh, sort of set a, a trend of stories about law enforcement companies adopting technologies, um, often for relatively little investment, that give these law enforcement entities really extraordinary, almost science fiction-like you know, surveillance powers. I'm thinking also, of, of course, of Clearview AI, which is much publicized. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was just relatively um, shocking to hear that local police had that capability to reach backwards. You know, we understand three years in time and figure out perhaps where each one of us, you know, slept every night. I think that this is something that we talked about years ago as in the realm of the possible. And indeed, it is happening in the present day. Um, you know, Fogg says, of course, that all the data is anonymized, so there's no reason for people to be concerned and have called, you know, folks who raise issue with this members of a cult of privacy, in the words of one Arkansas prosecutor we spoke with who is tightly tied to the company. But I think that the the interesting thing with these privacy issues is you do see some bipartisan coming together, which is so rare these days, um, to just really interrogate what are appropriate uses of this level of detailed surveillance and what are not. And I, I would also add that while predictive analytics is, is a buzz term, like we talked about earlier, you know, finding out where somebody spends their time, right, where they live, where they work, uh, where they shop, these types of things, in practice can be used to predict people's movements too. Uh, you know, we were talking about back in time, but forward. And so that was something that I learned through, through reporting like this. It doesn't take you know, some AI or some, you know, complicated algorithm to kind of, if you know where somebody lives to kind of predict where they're going to be. And so, you know, it may not be, uh, you know, kind of a predictive service, you know, in, in kind of computer jargon uh, terms, but, you know, it just in practical terms, it is. And the other thing I thought was interesting from this too, was, you know, there were geofence, geofence warrants, uh, oftentimes, which are done in concert with tech companies like Google and Apple. Um, those are starting to come under scrutiny by the court, as I mentioned with that uh, Virginia. And, and this tool seems like, at least through the marketing and the way that they talk about it, a way to do the same thing, sometimes without a warrant, depending on the state, because some states are, are, are tougher about that. Some departments are tougher about that. And so it, it's just another example of how 
you, there's always an end around, it seems, when one technology, one, you know, kind of trend um, hits a legal snag, there's always another one waiting in the wings and then another one. And so this, this is just the latest iteration of that idea. So if you can't, uh, you know, use cell phone tower uh, data, you go for the commercially available data from the data brokers, the ad tech companies and, and get at it the same way. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, we've seen this crop up in a whole variety of settings. I've done a lot of reporting in the past about immigration, and this is certainly an issue, you know, with immigration and customs enforcement's use of data from data brokers, the ways in which this can also be tied to other records and really, you know, paint a very full picture of a person's life and movements, I think is um, definitely something that we're going to be continued continue to be interested in you know how all of these technologies tie together and of course you bring up as well the possibility of law enforcement keeping tabs on uh, people seeking reproductive uh, health services in states uh, where it is now illegal so a lot to be concerned about here um, what's next for the two of you on this intersection of technology law enforcement uh, will you continue to report on fog or is there another story we can look forward to in the near term well, we're definitely interested in hearing from any listeners who may have, you know, more to share with us about all of these issues. Um, our reporting absolutely will continue um, right in this vein of sort of the intersection of technology and civil rights, technology and human rights. We have a number of uh, stories cooking right now. We'll be glad to talk with you about those in the future. Yeah, and I, I agree. There's so many un unanswered questions. You know, we can only get it so much in this first story. So I think uh, we're definitely continuing to dig to answer some of those questions and uh, definitely we'll have some stories upcoming in the near future, hopefully. Garance, Jason, thank you so much for speaking to me about this story today. Thanks for thank having you. us. Thank you so much for having us. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.